Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Help support this network and become a member. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for details. It's just $7.99 USD per month or save on an annual membership. That's arcpodnet.com slash members to support education and outreach. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You're listening to The Archaeology Show. TAS goes behind the headlines to bring you the real stories about archaeology and the history around us. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to The Archaeology Show, episode 174. On today's show, we interview John W.I. Lee about his book, The First Black Archaeologist. Let's dig a little deeper, but probably not as well as the first black archaeologist. He's a professional. (laughs) All right. Welcome to the show, everyone. Rachel, how's it going in stormy, humid North Carolina? (laughs) It's not that stormy and actually not that humid. It's a lovely 75 degrees out right now. It's really nice, actually. (laughs) That's fake news. I don't buy it. Uh, Yeah. uh Uh-huh. Yeah, so we're we're split up this month. Rachel is visiting family in North Carolina. I'm visiting family in Washington State, and we will reconnect next week, so to speak. I don't know if we'll yeah. record another episode before then, but hopefully we do. And yeah, that's the joys of living nomadically. You can just kind of work from anywhere. So Rachel's working from her family's home for a few weeks. Yep. Yeah, I've got little cute nieces here to play with. So I've been working, but also distracted. And they also gave me a cold. So if my voice sounds a little different, it's because <laughs> of the little the little disease factories that I've been spending a lot of time with. <laughs> As an audio engineer, I just call it the COVID filter and I've been using it for the last two years <laughs> because everybody's got a cold. So That's terrible. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Okay, yeah. so we are going to talk about somebody else who lived back in that area much longer ago than when your family moved there. <laughs> and to talk about John Wesley Gilbert, we're going to bring on the author of a recent book. And here is a little bit about John Lee before we get into the interview. All right. So here's a little bit about our guest. John W.I. Lee is professor of history at UC Santa Barbara. He grew up in Asia and Hawaii, studied history at the University of Washington in Seattle, and received his PhD in history from Cornell University. His publications include A Greek Army on the March, Soldiers and Survival in Xenophon's Anabasis, Cambridge University Press 2008, The Persian Empire, The Great Courses 2012, and The First Black Archaeologist, A Life of John Wesley Gilbert, and that's Oxford University Press 2022. John, welcome to the show. Hi, Chris. Uh, It's great to be here. And hi, Rachel. Nice to meet you both online. Yeah, absolutely. So we're we're glad to have you here. We came in contact with you because I think your publisher was just sending massive links out to anybody who might be able to talk about a book like we get all the time, (laughs) which is great because it (laughs) saves us from the legwork of finding people to talk to. They just kind of say, hey, can you talk to this person? We're like, yeah, no problem. (laughs) And and we got a, uh, I think, a PDF copy of the like the pre-publication of, of the book, which was also great. And let's just jump into this. So, you know, we're, we're going to ask you a bunch of questions about John Wesley Gilbert, but let's first start about what attracted you or brought you into 
the knowledge sphere of John Wesley Gilbert. How did you come to know about him? And then, you know, enough to write, want to write a book about him. I think the starting point is that I did not set out to write a book about Gilbert at all. And in fact, mm-hmm. the history of his life and his wider context, African-American history in the 19th and 20th centuries, um, was way out of my scholarly field. My main training is in ancient Greece and the Caymanid Persia, the first empire of ancient Persia. And my previous publications have been on things such as ancient mercenaries and a Caymanid Persian frontier defense and really nothing that was in modern history. So hmm. I stumbled across Professor Gilbert's story really by by accident. All right. Well, how did that happen? Yeah. You're going to laugh. So <clears throat> obstacle studies and, and Caymanid history are fields, especially classics, that have been very well trodden and they have centuries of work. And so if you want to write something... You have to read a lot of secondary literature. And I was plodding <laughs> through a very good, a very good German scholarly work on a Caymanid history. And I thought, you know, I need something different. I need something to distract me. It's something that I, I don't know anything about that, I'll, that I, can, I can kind of do as a side project. And I had learned Professor Gilbert's name from an article published by a scholar named Michelle Valerie Ronick. And Michelle Ronick has done mm-hmm. a lot of work with African-American classic scholars. And I got interested because Gilbert had been a student in Athens at the American School of Classical Studies, which is a archaeological and historical and literary research institute in in Greece. It's really the the, the United States' first overseas research institute. So I thought, okay, I'll I'll do a little story about about Professor Gilbert, first African-American scholar to go to Greece with the American School. It'll be different. You know, it'll just get me out of my secondary literature (laughs) funk. Um, And so I I meant to do this side piece while I kept working on a book on on, uh, the Achaemenid Empire. And I just found myself drawn into Gilbert's story in a way that mm-hmm. I hadn't expected. It was all new to me. I knew nothing really about uh, about the, the period of his life. And I didn't even know some of the methods. Like I had, I had to ask my colleagues, like, how do you work with an archive, right? Where do you go if you want to find documentary sources? Mm-hmm. And slowly, slowly, this, this project took over my life in, in the best possible way that I became... I just kind of felt like I had to to pursue it further. And every time I thought, okay, there's my little article, those colleagues I mentioned would suggest other ways I could continue investigating. And eventually I just decided I'm going to make this my book and I'll come back to the Persian Empire thing later. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was six years ago and the book just came out. So it, it turned wow. into my side project became my six year obsession, I guess you could say. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> and it's only a coincidence that you share two initials with his name. So that's that is entirely a, a yeah, entirely <laughs> a coincidence. Nice. I, hadn't, I hadn't thought about that. Six years of research into the life of one man. I'm really intrigued as to how there's such a, a depth of information there to draw your attention for such a length of time. Yes. Well, here's the funny the funny thing is they're actually, the starting point of my book is actually the destruction of the main building of Payne College in Augusta, Georgia, which was the, the school that Professor Gilbert taught at for virtually his entire life. He was, in fact, he was one of the first students of Payne College, um, mm-hmm. which is a historically black college in Augusta, Georgia. He was one of the first graduates. He was its first black professor. But the, the main building burned tragically in 1968. Mm-hmm. And so there, the kind of material that you would use archives for uh, not just Professor Gilbert, but a lot of the story of the school was destroyed. And that was kind of my starting point. And 
what I had to do, and I think what took me those six years was to track down every surviving trace I could find uh, of his life, of his networks, of the history around him. And Mm -hmm. I did that. Well, maybe one thing you'd say is that's what ancient historians do, right? I mean, we are Mm -hmm. are so used to working with fragments and we work with bits and pieces. And I already had that training and and that kind of transferred into my, into my search for, uh, for professor Gilbert's life. Okay. And, And I also had help along the way. I mentioned my colleagues, but some of the first people I, I encountered online were, were two people who've become really, really close friends. The Reverend Ashley Calhoun, who's actually in North, Car- North Carolina. And uh, Ashley, if you're listening to this at some point, um, thank you again for your help. <laughs> so Reverend Calhoun's father, Clayton Calhoun, had been president of Payne College from 1956 to 1970. Wow. Uh, he was one of my first contacts. And through Reverend Calhoun, I met Dr. Mallory Millinder. Mallory, if you're listening to this, thank you. <laughs> is a Payne College graduate and he is the college's historian. Okay. I met these two online and we began to chat and talk on the phone and it kind of became like a shared project together as we worked to explore and find every trace we could of Gilbert's life. And that took me to Augusta where I met local community historians and local preservation workers and so on. It took me to Brown University. It took me to North Carolina. It took me to Greece. Mm -hmm. And so it was with the help of you know, my ancient history sleuthing skills and <laughs> the community that I was able to write the book. So has there ever any, been anything else written about Gilbert, uh, books or you know, articles or otherwise? Y- yes, actually, that's a great question. So because of his connection with Payne College, Gilbert remained well-known in the 20th century in two Methodist denominations. Uh, mm-hmm. One denomination is the, the, the Christian Methodist Episcopal or CME Church. And that is an African-American denomination founded in the South and, and very strong in the South. But in the 20th century, there's even a CME Church here in Santa Barbara. Wow. And the other church is the Methodist Episcopal Church South or MECS, which is today part of the United Methodist Church. And don't worry, I won't test you on the, on the denomination. <laughs> <laughs> MECS was a was white dominated church that was formed because its members wanted to keep their slaves in the 1840s. Mm-hmm. And so these two churches, the MECS and the CME, had founded Payne College in 1881. It opened its doors in 1884 to educate African-Americans as teachers and as ministers uh, and to offer a, a liberal arts education to, to black men and black women. So Gilbert's life was known through the Methodist tradition's in those two churches, especially because he had been part of an interracial missionary uh, venture to what is today the the Congo. It was then the Belgian Congo when he went. So the story of of Professor Gilbert and his white colleague, who was a bishop of the MECS uh, named Walter Russell Lambeth, the the Lambeth and Gilbert mission was well known. And people wrote books about that. There are a couple of uh, books. uh, And I mentioned um, Reverend Ashley Calhoun. Well, his father, Clayton Calhoun wrote perhaps the best of those books in 1961. And Mm. so there had been books about the missionary part, but not about any of his archaeological work or really about his the the rest of his life. Okay, well, that's pretty interesting, given how how much he did, which we'll talk about a little bit later. But, man, I'm kind of surprised he kind of hadn't come up before in archaeological context. You know what I mean? That that's well, that's a really interesting point. And I mentioned um, Michelle Ronick, and I think. 
along with other scholars, she really um, helped to bring hidden figures, you could say, mm-hmm. uh, such as John Wesley Gilbert back into our awareness, because starting in the 90s, you know, when electronic searching and databases were, were not a thing yet, she really began to, to research the lives of these 19th and 20th century black scholars who had worked in segregated schools and often were not noticed by histories of classical scholarship. Mm-hmm. Well, I just needed to uh, back up for just a quick moment because can you place in time, like where in time this is taking place? I'm, I'm guessing it's like late 1800s, early 1900s time frame, or maybe a little bit later, but I just, I, I can't remember the dates off the top of my head and I was hoping you could place it in time for me. Absolutely. So, so um, John Wesley Gilbert was born in 1863 mm. in south of Augusta, Georgia, which is in the very eastern mm. edge of the state of Georgia. And he died in 1923. Uh, so. Oh talking about the the Civil War, the post-Civil War era, the rise of Jim Crow, and then into the early 1920s. So he died about a a century ago. Gotcha. Yeah. Was born and raised in interesting times, for sure. So... Yeah. Certainly, yes, yes. And that's that's part of the story as well, yeah. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that on the other side of the break, because I want to talk about the structure and some of the choices you made in basically how to organize this book as far as a biography goes. So we'll do that on the other side of the break. Don't forget to listen to the ads that are coming up, please. It helps support us. This is a, you know, an archaeology podcast network. It's not a, you know, magic money making machine. So (laughs) please listen to some of the ads and uh, it'll help us, especially if you look down at your device and click on them back in a minute. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back to episode 174 of the Archaeology Show, and we are talking with John Lee about John Gilbert, John W. Lee about John (laughs) Gilbert. So I don't know why that's funny. (laughs) It's just weird coincidences in life. Anyway, Mm -hmm. I want to talk to you now about the structure and organization of this book, because you know, I've read some autobiographies before, uh, you know, big prominent characters, stuff like that. And a lot of people, I mean, some of the biographies I've read, they have, they've really delved into, you know, somewhat glossed over their early life, but then really delved into some of their accomplishments and achievements. But mm-hmm. you spend a lengthy amount of time going over like almost every, you know, moment you could find about John Wesley Gilbert's life in his early years, you know, his early schooling and, and just a lot of the stuff you could find. Can you explain somewhat the reasoning behind that? Like what, what, why you thought you wanted to tell that part of the story as well? So first of all, I mean, in some ways my structure is, you know, it's chronological, which is the obvious biographical. Sure. I don't have a lot of, you know, narrative backs and forths. And I didn't originally intend to write a lot about 
Gilbert's early life. And mm -hmm. I have credit that to my colleague, Patricia Klein Cohen, who's a historian of the 19th century United States. And I thought, oh, there's nothing I can write because there's no documents. Yeah. He was enslaved. His family was enslaved. But, but Pat said, you know, enslaved people leave behind traces in the slave master's documents. So, so start looking in those. Mm. And she showed me how to look at, at court cases and probate records and newspaper advertisements. And I was able to trace Gilbert's family back in time for about uh, 40 years, even more than that, actually, all the way into the, into the late 1700s. And that is important to my story because it helps to set the stage of his achievements. It helps to set yeah. the, you know, the, the, the darkness of slavery. It helps to understand that this young boy's life was shaped by all that came before him. And mm -hmm. If he were not, you know, if he had not been born into slavery, if he came from a prominent, you know, British academic family or something, just for example, all that would be well known. So I kind of felt as Pat pushed me to do that, that it, that it became more and more important to bring that story to life and that it would be part of the story. And it's also important for his own development as a scholar, because from the minute that I have a document with his own writing on it, right? He's seven years old. He's signing his own name. <laughs> so that. His own name. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And this is an extraordinary thing because this is Georgia in 1870, 71, when just a few years before it was illegal for black people to, to read or write. You know, it was, mm -hmm. uh, of course, the law was not always followed, but, but we're talking about just a few years after the end of a civil war. And so that early part of his story is really, I think, essential to understanding where he came from. And it also helps, I think, readers understand the enormous, enormous achievements of a whole generation of people uh, who yeah. came out of slavery and, and threw themselves into learning. I mean, it's it's I've said this you know, elsewhere. It's like it's one of the greatest generations of the United States. And it, it's not I, you know, in some areas it's recognized at that, but but the kind of the, the 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 thirst for learning, young people, old people, men, women, boys, girls, just freed from slavery, throwing themselves into learning during the Civil War and afterward, is it's a truly incredible part of our of our country's history. Do you think his unique? Well, I don't even know if they were unique, but do you think his experiences in childhood? led him to a more scholarly academic career and even uh, an interest in those things at a young age, you know, being able to write his own name at seven or sign his own name at seven? Or was that a combination of that in addition to, you know, does it seem like he was just a very, very, very intelligent person, like maybe above average intelligence, or if you can even tell that? He was clearly, a, he was clearly, a, I mean, John Wesley Gilbert was a, he was a brilliant linguist, right? Classical yeah. Greek, classical Latin, spoken Greek, French, and German. Uh, he's <laughs> wow. also, and, and he studied as well biblical Hebrew. He learned some Zulu, and he learned uh, in Africa or before Africa two languages spoken in the in the Congo, uh, Otatela and Shiluba. So he was a really gifted linguist. Yeah. You know, in one respect, his life story is not unusual. I, I mentioned mm -hmm. that thirst for learning. So, you know, African-Americans after the Civil War, they, the interest in learning and education and advancement was so enormous. So in that respect, he's not, you know, he's not extraordinary. There are many like him. 
but he has a combination of drive, of intelligence, uh, good luck and connections, providence, you could say, that mm-hmm. helps him advance in a way that not all of his contemporaries are able to do so. I mean, I know that I, I mentioned his elementary school. I'm able to trace some of his classmates from elementary school who end up being, you know, they're, they drive, they're, they're wagon drivers or they're laborers. And you can see them in the city directories of Augusta when yeah. John Gilbert's on his way to Greece. Um, so in that sense, he was both not unusual, but also an extraordinary, extraordinary person. Wow. I think you may have given us a bit of a hint when you were listing off the languages that he knows or knew some of, but it sounds like he worked a lot in Greece, but was there anywhere else or it, what sort of places did he tend to focus on throughout yeah. his career? Let's see. I mentioned he grew up in Augusta. From Augusta, he studied in Atlanta for a time at uh, the, a predecessor of what's today Morehouse College. Mm-hmm. He returned and finished his education at Payne College. It was called Payne Institute in those days. He went to Brown University. He was the third African-American to graduate from Brown. And then in 1890, he was the first African-American to go to Greece to do archaeological work. And so his archaeological work, both excavation and survey and topography, was in Greece, specifically at the ancient uh, city of Eretria, which is north of, of Athens mm-hmm. uh, on the island of Euboea. Yeah. Nice. Wow. That's really crazy. I'm curious how he got his interest in that part of the world. Did that come up in your research? Yeah, it does. So we don't, I mean, today, you know, Greek and Latin is seen as a niche, I guess. There are cultural discussions about Greek and Latin. In the 19th century, for both black educators and white educators, classical learning was the standard. So Mm -hmm. to have a classical education was to be an educated person, was to have access to the, you know, the the, the best that the culture could could offer. And so Gilbert was not the only person, only African-American student who was interested in, in, in classics. And that was his first entry. But he was like kind of unusual for the archaeology part, because when he went to Greece in, in 1890, you know, archaeology, as we know it, was really kind of just forming as a professional yeah. discipline. I mean, you know, there had been diggers treasure hunters, both in Italy and in Greece, people were working towards a more scientific archaeology. But in 1890, there probably was not really a person in the U.S. you could call, you know, a full-fledged professional Hmm. archaeologist. He's really in this transition period. I mean, he's one of the first 50 Americans of any background, any race, any ethnicity, any background to go to Greece to do archaeology in a time when, you know, the old kind of let's dig for treasure is giving way to uh, (laughs) let's think about, you know, stratigraphy and survey and and sort of scientific presentation of our of our research. Well, so I guess that begs the question, too, like what even got him interested in, I guess, ancient learning? I mean, sure, a classical education and he goes to Greece, but, you know, you can go to Greece for a number of reasons. You can go to Greece to study current Greek people or certain periods, you know, if, if that's your thing. But I'm just trying to figure out what was his did, did, did you uncover any like direct influences in probably his university education that said, you know, hey, I'm going to go study these ancient questions that we don't know the answer to? Oh, we, no, absolutely. That's a, that's a great question. So actually, it's worth saying here that there were two other African-Americans who had wanted to go to Greece before Gilbert. And one of them mm-hmm. was a, a brilliant young man named Wiley Lane from Howard University. And, and if Professor Lane had gone to Greece, he would have focused on modern Greek literature and modern Greek language. But he died of pneumonia. So he was never able oh, to go. And the other scholar, William Sanders Scarborough, was never able to to raise the money. So Gilbert would be the first, although others had been invited. Mm -hmm. And I I think Gilbert's interest in the archaeological part and going to Greece, 
was a result of his mentor at Brown University, who was a guy named Albert Harkness, who nobody knows about today. But Albert Harkness was a, a brilliant classic scholar, and he was unusual for the time because he was interested in archaeology. Mm-hmm. He was the one who told John Wesley Gilbert, you know, there's this, this new school uh, in Athens, and you can get a fellowship to go to Athens, Greece, to study archaeology and to read your Greek classics mm-hmm. there. And I think that's where, not I think, that's pretty clearly where Gilbert w- was inspired to, to go to Greece. Okay. And, uh, you know, another thing I'm interested in is, I mean, I don't know a lot about this, so maybe it's a naive question, but a uh, young, because it sounds like when he went to Greece, I think he was like 27, if I'm doing my math right, uh, yeah. mm-hmm. a young African-American mm-hmm. scholar getting the the funding and the, I guess, permissions and all that stuff to travel to Greece. And not only that, but to come back and, you know, maintain that, uh, I guess, academic lifestyle. How did that happen? How did he get the the funding for that? So to go to Greece, it was it was Brown University. And um, okay. I think Brown and, and Professor Harkness deserve the credit for that because Harkness got him a graduate fellowship, which meant he could go for a whole year oh, wow. and have, you know, have the full year to to study. And I talked about, you know, William Sanders Scarborough, the other black classic scholar, you know, he, Scarborough could never get the, never find the money. So it was thanks to Gilbert's studies at Brown that he was mm-hmm. able to get that, that Brown fellowship uh, to go. And there's another part of the story, which is it's worth remembering, is that by the time he went to Greece, Gilbert was already teaching at Payne Institute or Payne College. And yeah. his mentor there, a white minister named George Williams Walker, uh, also approved of his going. He gave him, you know, basically a sabbatical to go to Greece. And he also got, it wasn't a whole lot of money, but but Walker also got some additional money to help Gilbert support himself and his family. Gilbert left behind his wife and the baby daughter when he went. Mm-hmm. So he had funding, Gilbert had funding, and that enabled him to go. And I think Walker also realized that, that uh, you know, sending a scholar to Greece would put Payne College, Payne Institute as it was then, increase the school's reputation. And, and whatever Gilbert learned there, he would bring back uh, and share mm-hmm. with other students at Payne. Okay. So, you know, it's it, Gilbert, we, back to your question about was he unusual or, or, or not. I mean, one thing is unusual he, is he has he's able to find funding. And, you know, whether it's the 19th century or now, everybody knows that the funding, <laughs> the funding is a crucial thing. <laughs> Some things never change. <laughs> yeah. So I am curious because, you know, this is the 1890s ish that we're talking about here. And. You know, archaeology is still a pretty new field at that time. So, you know, today when somebody goes to a different country to, to study, they usually have some niche thing that they're going there to learn about and to really focus on. And I'm wondering if in the 1890s, it was more just like, let's excavate this big city and see what we find. Or if he did have a truly like niche topic that he was very focused on learning about at at Atreia, I think you said it was in Greece. Yeah, um, Eretria. Eretria. Okay, got it. You know, if you're if you type Eretria, E R E T R I A, into a search engine, or you type it in your word processor, it's going to want to autocorrect it to Eritrea. Uh-huh. It's in East, uh, Northeast Africa, and that happens all the time. But it's Eritrea, not Eritrea. <laughs> so you know, I mentioned archaeology was in its infancy. Gilbert went as students do still today to the American school, the idea of getting a broad overview of Greece. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But when he got there, his the program was determined by the interests of his two professors. 
And one of them was a man named Rufus Richardson from Dartmouth. And Rufus Richardson liked to hike and he liked to read the Roman writer Pausanias, who was kind of like a Roman Empire tourist traveler who, who went all through Greece when it was part of the, of the Roman Empire. And he wrote about it. And so Richardson was a, they called him a Pausaniac. They were all Pausaniacs in those days, like looking at their Pausanias, walking to the site, trying to see if they could find what Pausanias had described. And that's one thing that, that Gilbert did. They did a lot of that. And the other kind of focus was determined by uh, the American school's permanent director. Hmm. He was American in origin. Uh, he was a German Jewish New Yorker, Charles Waldstein, but he had a position at Cambridge. And Waldstein was, you might say, kind of a tr also a transitional figure. He was very interested in ancient art. He was a brilliant critic of ancient art, but he was really looking for pretty stuff. So when he went digging, he didn't care about the stratigraphy or the ceramics. What he cared about was finding jewelry or sculpture or temples, mm. the kinds of things that, that the treasure hunting mindset and mindset had. So Gilbert had these two directions. One was topography, Pausanias, walking the landscape. The other was excavation, looking for beautiful objects. Hmm. Hmm. That's really cool. That sounds about like the 1890s. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> a really interesting yeah. time. Yeah. All right. Well, with that, let's take our final break and talk about some of his bigger accomplishments and I guess the, the middle to end of John Wesley Gilbert's career back in a minute. We've got regular live events coming up that we don't want you to miss. Head over to our new parent website, Culturo, and check out the live events calendar. We're ramping it up slowly, so bookmark and check back often. That's culturomedia.com with a K. Once again, that's culturomedia.com. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Want to keep this conversation going? Want to talk to the hosts of this show and other fans? Then join our membership program and get exclusive access to the hosts, other fans, and early access to these episodes and bonus segments and content. You'll also get forever access to our live show back catalog and any other shows ad-free. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for details. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. Welcome back to the final segment of episode 174 of the Archaeology Show. And I'm wondering what, well, let's, let's step back a second. His childhood, uh, you know, you, you mentioned bringing all this stuff in about his childhood and how that kind of shaped him and his thinking and, and the people that influenced around him. Can you think of any, I guess, direct influences on it? Cause maybe he wrote about this later in life or something like that, but any direct influences or anything that his childhood in slavery 
actually helped shape his career as an archaeologist? I don't know. I feel like that would give you a particular point of view or understanding. It, it would. But, it, you know, it's important if you think chronologically that Gilbert, Gilbert was born in 1863. So the Civil War was still going, but the slavery system was collapsing. When he was sure. a very young child, the system was gone. So he did not have, I think, any personal memory of the system. What he did have was a very vivid childhood memory, mm-hmm. childhood knowledge of the post-Civil War period. And that's both good and bad. So Augusta, Georgia is an interesting place because it had a, a an educated black population before the Civil War. And after the Civil War, although schools were segregated, it had a, a board of education that provided funding for, for black schools and that brought in black teachers mm-hmm. for those schools. So Gilbert was able to get an education in Augusta, Georgia, um, with some of, you could say, the very best young minds that were that were coming out of schools in Atlanta, young African-American college graduates, men and women. So, you know, he, he, he was really able to benefit from that. And, you know, if you say, how is that related to the legacy of slavery? I mean, these are people who some of the older teachers had grown up in slavery uh, and they were determined to make the best of their lives and to make the people they were teaching as, you know, as uh, to, to do as much as they could possibly do. Sure. And into the 1880s, 90s, African-Americans would say about Augusta that it was a special place. There was a student of Gilbert's named Channing Tobias who later was a leader in the NAACP. And and Tobias, to talk with John Hope, who was another student of Gilbert's. John Hope was the, f- the first black president of Morehouse College in Atlanta University. And they would talk about how Augusta was a special place because a black person could reach for the heights and receive encouragement from, from white people hmm. in doing that. Wow. And so that's the, you know, that's the environment that, that Gilbert grew up in, which, is, which was unusual. And that's, you know, in the post-Civil War era. But on the other hand, Augusta is also the place that has, you know, some of the first Confederate monuments in the country. Uh, <laughs> right. It's a complex legacy back, that goes back and forth. And then as you look into, you know, the 1890s and the 1900s, Augusta does not escape uh, the rise of Jim Crow. And that's something that, you know, Gilbert lives through as well. And, and that really marks that, you know, his later years, you know, one, I'll give you one terrible story is he, he told an interviewer that he would never ride after about 1907, he never rode on a streetcar with his wife because he felt that somebody might insult his wife or say something and he would try to defend his wife and then he would Mm. be, he would be lynched. We're talking about America's, you know, like one of the first American archaeologists, a distinguished man, an educated person. It doesn't matter if you're educated or not, but that was what he, you know, he told, wow. he told someone in those days. And so the, the environment had also changed from the Augusta of the 1880s that Channing Tobias and John Hope talked about. So it's not slavery that, you know, that's it's the it's the, the change from actually things in his in his world were were more welcoming earlier than they became later in his life. Well, it's terrible he had to think that way as far as streetcars and his wife goes, but I guess admirable in the fact that he recognized his own limitations. And he's like, listen, if we're just not going to do it because if something happens, I'm going off. <laughs> I, don't, I know a lot of people today that don't think that way. <laughs> um, it's a terrible thing to have to imagine. You know, yeah, I, for sure. It's, it really is to... Well, I mean, whether or not he was an educated person, whether or not he was famous, it's a terrible thing to have to imagine that you can't... Oh, yeah, for anyone. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, well, so speaking of 
education and famous. <laughs> what are maybe not? I don't know. What are some of his biggest archaeological accomplishments? And, and when I think about that, I'm wondering, what do we know today that we can accredit John Wesley Gilbert to? Absolutely. So they went to Eretria, I mentioned. Um, yeah. and, and Gilbert and his colleague, uh, John Picard, who later became a famous archaeologist in Missouri, together they did a, a topographical survey of the ancient remains on the surface. So they mapped all the walls, the, the towers, the, the visible surface remains, and they tried to, to put together a chronology of when the walls had been built. And this was really um, the most advanced survey that any American team had done since the founding of the American school. It really set the standard, wow. I think, for what came after it. And if you talk to the Greek and Swiss archaeologists who work at Eretria today, and they've been digging there since the 1960s, the, um, the Swiss school along with the Greek archaeologists, they will tell you that, that Gilbert and Picard's survey is invaluable because it records remains that were destroyed after mm -hmm. 1891. And so they they had extremely careful measuring. They had careful recording. They walked around all around. And so uh, that remains 120 years later. I think it's a it's an important scientific achievement and it's a milestone in American archaeology. Uh, I think you um, you could you could justifiably say that it was it was an important step in American archaeology. Yeah. That is so cool to hear about because I think that one of the problems with past archaeologists and archaeology is that they didn't necessarily take the time to document before they just went digging in trying to find the treasures, right? Mm -hmm. So to know that he's one of the first that sort of pioneered the whole mapping everything and really carefully measuring and doing all that. I mean, I can just imagine them out there just like taking these painstaking measurements mm -hmm. all day long. That's that's really cool. So that's really neat to hear. I love that little bit of information. Yes. And, and John, so John Picard would publish this final report mm -hmm. on their survey. And in, in the very first footnote, he actually credits, he says, Mr. John W. Gilbert is responsible for all the, me all the measurements. So he very explicitly gave mm -hmm. Gilbert credit for that. He, uh, you know, Picard as was white, as were all the other um, people. Picard could have just written Gilbert out of the story because by the time Picard did the, the publication, you know, Gilbert was gone from Greece, but he, he made very sure that people knew who it was who had been, you know, who had done the measuring. Uh, in that project. Very cool. Nice, nice. All right. Well, that just leads us on. And you already mentioned a few of his students as well. But what's his academic legacy? What are, you know, what, what are some of the things that we're still benefiting from from having, having him in academia and as an archaeologist? Yeah. Absolutely. So I, I mentioned Channing Tobias, later leader mm -hmm. of the NAACP, uh, John Hope, uh, later a major educational figure in Atlanta. One of his other students was a man named Randall Albert Carter, who was a, a bishop in the in the CME church. And as a bishop, Carter, I think, founded about 250 churches uh, during the period wow. of the Great Migration. So very, very important figure for this, the spread of the church into the north. And I could go on and mention other individuals, but I think, you know, in a generation at, at, at Payne College, Gilbert taught both men and women because it was a co-ed school from the start. And that was not true with, with a number of other schools, whether they were black or white at the time. He taught a, a, a people who went on to be teachers and, and ministers and lawyers and doctors all around, the, all, all around the South and all the way into the North. So he kind of helped to educate a, a generation of people. 
That's awesome. That's really cool. It's nice to see that kind of pedigree, you know, going back to somebody, you know, to see a start of that and going back to somebody who kind of founded, I guess, so to speak, a, a legacy like that. That's really awesome. Actually, may I follow up on that? Yeah. So I mentioned that earlier, Dr. Millinder, uh, Mallory Millinder grew up in New York City and he attended a CME church there. And among the people at the church as an associate pastor was Channing Tobias. So in other words, that's just a two-step jump from Dr. Millinder, who I know, through Tobias to Gilbert. I mean, yeah, that kind wow. of the, the, the genealogy of knowledge and inspiration, I think, is there. Yeah. So you say he was a teacher and he taught all these really great people. Just curious, what subjects was he teaching? Was it archaeology or is it more of the linguistic stuff or what direction did he go with his actual teaching? Rachel, that's a great question. So he did not teach any standalone archaeology classes, but most likely mm. he incorporated the archaeology into his Greek classes, mm. but later teach world a uh, world history uh, and mm-hmm. history Europe class. So he must have had some archaeological material in there, but much of his teaching was languages. So Greek, um, German, I mentioned his German uh, teaching, uh, Latin, mm-hmm. and English literature. He, he loved English literature. Uh, that's something that he um, shared with his mentor, George Williams Walker. Those are the classes that you find him often teaching, Greek, Latin, German, uh, English literature. We would know more, except, you know, I mentioned the, the fire, right, that, that mm-hmm. the Payne uh, administration building. So the course catalogs basically don't exist except for a few years. We have about, I don't know, a half dozen in total for the period of his life, which is, that's really not very much. So you can't, you can't understand everything that he was, um, that he was doing. And maybe, you know, if any of anybody listening has, is in the, uh, in, in Georgia or North Carolina and has old stuff in their attic, you know, go look, go see what you have in your attic. These documents may exist somewhere. And I'm, I want thing I'm hopeful about the book is it helps to bring out more documents that people might have left somewhere up in the attic or grandma or grandpa mm-hmm. had them and mm-hmm. we would benefit greatly from rediscovering those. Wow, that's cool. Yeah. So you, you mentioned, I think in the first segment that he had a daughter when he went to Greece, he left a daughter and his, and his wife behind. Did he have any other children? Did, did any of his descendants, you know, kind of grow up to be archaeologists in their footsteps? In fact, he had he had four children. Okay. Alma was uh, his oldest daughter was Alma. John Jr., mm-hmm. uh, Sarah, and then Matty or Juanita. She often uh, later would go by. And Sarah died tragically. She some some sort of illness, maybe an appendix or other infection. Mm-hmm. She was a teenager. Alma and and Juanita became teachers. Uh, and John Jr. worked. He worked in various things and actually moved as far north as as Michigan before dying pretty early. But none of his children. He had no grandchildren. Uh, they, none of the, mm-hmm. they, they they all married, but they never had any. Oh wow! Any children, and you know, and that's another part of the story. They, the, when the children separated and they all went their own ways, um, Gilbert's papers that you know anything that he had in the household was was scattered, mm-hmm. um, and that also kind of curtailed. You know, it's another aspect to take it, take us back in a circle to where we began. You know, the the documents were lost, and I, I it's a great great contrast. In the course of my research, I was able to meet John Picard's great granddaughter. Wow! So this Picard is you know is Gilbert's teammate in Greece and. And she still has documents from her great grandfather, and I, I was able to meet meet his meet the great granddaughter, and <laughs> you know let me use these documents for my research. Uh, and so that's another part of the story is that John Wesley Gilbert had no grandchildren, 
Dr. Millinder and I tried to find other relatives, but we could not find cousins. Um, it's still possible that, you know, that, that other relatives might surface, but there was no direct, um, no direct descent uh, from his children. Okay. All right. Well, we are nearing the end of this interview, but I want to hear about a recent trip you took to Georgia, going back there to the, to the homeland, so to speak, as far as John Wesley Gilbert is concerned. Uh, yes. So uh, just about a week and a half ago now, I was able to go back to Augusta, Georgia for the first time since before the pandemic in about three mm-hmm. years. I had, of course, had been there for several visits during the course of my research. And it was a really special experience because, you know, I mentioned Dr. Milinder and Reverend Calhoun and the others who helped me. I mean, this is a story that really belongs to the people of Augusta, to the African-American community there, uh, to Payne College and its people. And, you know, I, 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 I've said this before, I'm just kind of the messenger who's bringing the story to a wider audience. So to mm-hmm. be back there after these three years of terrible times and to, you know, to celebrate the publication of the book and the, you know, the wider attention that it'll bring to Gilbert and Augusta and kind of in general to the, to the achievements of 19th and 20th century African-American education. It was a really special moment. And I was able to speak at a, at a school, A.R. Johnson Magnet School, which is named after A.R. Johnson was the first um, licensed black teacher in the state of Georgia. And he was also John Wesley Gilbert's grammar school teacher. So it was wow. incredible to go there and speak to these. Oh, and boy, those those students, they were so engaged and so interested. And they asked me question after question after question. Nice. Um, and it was just a really special and moment to, to come back to this place that I had been separated from, that the story had grown out of, and to, to, you know, to be able to share this publication with them. It was, it was really, really special. All right. Well, this has been really awesome and informative, and it's always great to hear the, you know, the the legacy that, you know, Rachel and I are both archaeologists. And, you know, to be honest, it doesn't matter where they're at or where they're from. We all owe, you know, something of our careers to the people that came before us. And it's nice mm-hmm. to hear the stories of those people, how they got into the fields they got into and, and what they did and, and what they left behind. So what's next for you? Uh, <laughs> I mean, you've been doing this for six years now. <laughs> what's, what's, what are you doing now? <laughs> um, I'll tell you that, that my, my, you know, we have three children, uh, my wife and I, and two were born during the course of the book. And I, one of my, my big commitments <laughs> is to spend more time with the, um, with the family. And, and um, <laughs> right. But I am also, you know, I, now I have a foot in two worlds. I have a foot in the history of, of black education and black classics in the 19th and 20th centuries. And I am continuing some research on that. Um, I have not left behind the, the, the Persian Empire or a Cayman history. So I have um, I have a project going in that. And I hope to get back to Greece, which, again, you know, since the pandemic, I haven't I haven't been there. So um, yeah. the answer is I've got you know, I've got things going in lots of different places. But above all, I want to. <laughs> I want to be sure to, to, to give my kids the attention that, uh, and my wife, <laughs> that they, you know, I spent, you know, I was working six days a week for years and, um, I want to, I don't want to do that. I'm not doing that anymore. Not, I don't want to, but I'm not doing that anymore. Yeah. I hear you. I hear you. Speaking for myself, I definitely would love to hear more like forgotten archeologist stories, black archeologists or any archeologists of color who may have been lost to history because it's just not the accomplishments are not necessarily they're just not necessarily talked about and also because you don't necessarily know what color somebody was that is from a hundred years ago you might not know that there's actually a really interesting and awesome black archaeologist that you can look up to as a young 
black child. So it would just would be really yeah. great to have more of those people known to modern day people so that they can have more icons and more people to look up to. I just think that telling those stories is really great. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. And I, but no, I would say that whoever you are, that Gilbert, if you're an archaeologist, um, race, ethnicity, or background, you know, he stands as a, as an inspiration, an example. Um, mm-hmm. Someone who struggled and achieved and was at the, you know, a part of our discipline when it was still growing and, and learning. And he's one of, I mean, there, there, of course, there are others we can talk about, but I think in that sense, he's inspirational to, to all of us who work in archaeology. Absolutely. All right. Well, with that, Take a look down at your phone or look at your computer or whatever. We have links to some resources here that you can click on and and check out more about John Wesley Gilbert. You can pick up the book and you can learn more about some historical archaeologists. Archaeologists end up becoming part of the archaeological record themselves at some point, which is kind (laughs) of cool. Then we can research them as well. It's very meta. So again, John, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you so much, Rachel and Chris. It's really been a delight to speak with you. Thanks for listening to The Archaeology Show. Feel free to comment and view the show notes on the website at www.archpodnet.com. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ArcPodNet. Music for this show is called I Wish You Would Look from the band Sea Hero. Again, thanks for listening and have an awesome day. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, Dig Tech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening. Please consider joining our growing core of members over at archpodnet.com slash members. If you liked what you heard, consider leaving a review wherever you're listening to this. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.